I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Bubble Trouble, conversations between the independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist and author Will Page, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. We'd like to wish our listeners a happy new year and summarize what we've done last year, which was a terrific year for Bubble Trouble, because we spent a lot of the year pricking the bubbles. We did NFTs. Remind me what else we did, Will. Cryptocurrency. Metaverse. If there's a bubble that burst, then we pricked it first. We did. (laughs) That is a great tagline for the podcast. If there is a bubble that burst, we pricked it first. Today, it is a day to go down to the pub and have a chat that is going to be focused on my co-host Will Page's paperback edition of Tarzan Economics, renamed Pivot. And I will ask him why he's renamed the book in a moment. There's quotes from Adam Grant and Scott Galloway on the cover and a new afterword at the back. And we're going to take this episode to probe Will a little bit on what he learned in the past year or so of Bubble Trouble and what new he had to add to Tarzan Economics, now named Pivot. So back in a second with that. Well, as I said, we don't do shameless plugs here on Bubble Trouble, but we're going to make an exception for my esteemed co-host, Will Page. And heading into the third year of Bubble Trouble, I have to ask him what he's learned since he wrote Tarzan Economics, which I think you said it came out 1st of April, April Fool's Day in, in, <laughs> on 2001. Ain't no joke. And also, you know, why did you change the title of that terrific Tarzan Economics, Tarzan and Jane, all those great illusions, to pivot? Why, Explain that one to me. Why not swinging around the jungle and scantily clad clothes didn't work? I'll tell you why. What I learned and why I changed, it can be merged together here. I learned that words, books with the word economics don't sell in airports or train stations. That is, WH Smith's Travel loved the book. They just didn't like the title. If you're going to go on a long-haul flight and you're killing time in the departure lines looking at the bookshelves of WH Smith's or Hudson Travel in America then books with economics are not the ones you pick off the shelf to read for nine hours. But books called Pivot, well, maybe there's a chance there. So they loved the book. They want the title change. So we went back to the drawing board and we came up with Pivot. And it's full title, Eight Principles for Transforming Your Business in a Time of Disruption. And not just you know, a new title, a new book cover, a new brand, but also an afterword. Four, four and a half thousand word afterword, deeply relevant, looking at what stuck with the book and what's relevant today. 
Yeah, and there were a lot of things in that afterward that we had talked about on Bubble Trouble, whether it was wash trades yep. or the quite a few examples of things that we called out of bubbles and maybe are disruptions that didn't happen. I saw a recent article about wash trades. I think it was in one like Wall Street Journal, one of these newspapers. And toe for toe, it read like they've been listening to our podcast of March 2022. NFTs are not for me. Still our most popular podcast, Richard. So I cannot get out of my mind this image of scantily clad whether men or women, in leopard skin bikinis swinging through the jungle. Is so that why you're sweating here in the studio I, or is that I, the temperature? I want to talk about the swinging vines analogy you have in mm-hmm. the book. Letting go of one vine, the old one, and clinging on to the new one. That sort of point of hanging in the air and not sure whether you can grab onto that new vine, which is that nervous point of disruption where companies, industries, businesses have to transition. Now, there's one sector that you call out in the afterword that you say that hasn't done this, and that's education. Mm-hmm. And there was something interesting on Radio 4 this morning, I think, about how dissatisfied students are with this notion of hybrid learning. They signed up to go to university, they paid all these expensive fees, and they're sitting in their dorm rooms watching Zoom lessons. And well, there was that meme at Stanford Business School which had Stanford Business School $40,000 a year, Netflix nine ninety nine a right. month and, and you stare at screens. I now, mean their action is the same. Now universities are in cost crisis seemingly perpetually but how do you transform something that's part commercial part a public good because we obviously want people to be well educated but 100% tradition if you look at how the industry, these uh, universities market themselves when you look at an industry like that's still clinging to the old vine and struggling to transition to the new one what's your thesis so let me unpack this in two quick steps. Firstly, I just want to take on the issue of uh, universities in a funding crisis. So if I look at my own university, University of Edinburgh at home, to which I'm a fellow of the Edinburgh Futures Institute, they have money. If you look at their investment fund, they have lots of money, but it's almost like they're asset rich, but cash poor. So I do think universities have to check themselves when they say they're in a funding crisis when their investment vehicles are producing amazing returns. You cannot plead poverty on one hand and champion amazing returns from your investment vehicle on the other hand. I just want to just air that taboo topic right here, right now. But if you're looking at, we've heard about MOOCs and online education courses disrupting universities for years. I think it comes down to a challenge of two things. You wash out all the pros and cons and arguments for and against. Well, we have universities in the future. Can we all just go online training? I think the value of the brand you can't undermine. Parents all over the world would aspire for their kids to go to Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale. That brand has a legacy value and that's not going away. In fact, it could be appreciating value. But the other end of the spectrum is the relevance, the real-time relevance of the curriculums being taught. So I mentioned in the book that when I was at university at the turn of the millennium, the top three subjects were law, accountancy and banking. If you wanted to earn the big bucks, you applied to do those three professions. You studied courses that would get you into those professions. Now it's UX designers, it's software engineers, it's developers, it's tech jobs that earn the big bucks. And that tech is moving so fast that I don't think the curriculums can keep up to date. Mm. So if you studied SQL for four years at university, sorry, we're on to Google BigQuery. If you studied Tableau at university this year, sorry, we're moving on to Google Studio. So I think... The Tarzan economics, letting go of the old vine and reaching out to the new vine, starts to happen when you realize these curriculums are, next year's curriculum, should I say, is already out of date. But it's the power of those luxury brands. And certainly those luxury brands, like all luxury brands these days, have been 
marketed with global appeal. So all of these Ivy League universities are attracting students from all over the world, notably from China and India and so forth. And they're promoting that luxury brand experience, if you will. But that experience is being hugely diluted if all you're doing is sitting there watching online classes. Right. And I think... Where the rubber hits the road is when the employers out there don't want you to be paying a fortune in potentially debt to acquire this brand, but not acquire the skills that you need. You start to see Google build their own universities. Come train at Google. You'll earn money as opposed to accumulate debt, and you'll Mm. actually learn the tools we need for you to sell our adverts and develop our business. Now, it sounds very vocational, and there'll be an academic counter backlash to that, because what about learning about philosophy? What about learning about the arts? But that cost-benefit analysis of I could be $100,000 in debt and have a degree that's already out of date versus I could be $200,000 up and have vocational training that gets me further into the hierarchical structure of a firm, I think over time people will recalculate that cost-benefit and make their own decisions. I don't know. You still get to have three or four years of getting absolutely shit-faced with your friends at parties. What the economists can't capture is getting shit-faced at parties. And to be absolutely clear, full disclosure, I drank my way through university and I don't remember much of it, but I did get a 2-1. There you go. Yeah, Richard, you uncovered the inconvenient truth there. I mean, I'm talking here about the relevance of the curriculum and the value of the brand, but the true value, like you say, is the ability to get drunk for three or four years of your life and have a rocking good time. And on that, can I just reflect on my time at university with what my big brother, my far brainier big brother said to me, which is, if you get a first class degree at university, that meant you studied too hard. If you get a 2-2 degree at university, that meant you party too hard. So I'm pleased to say I got a 2-1, which meant I got the balance between partying and studying just about right. Well, we're not going to go over your university career here. (laughs) Although I think you do have a point you want to make about price discrimination in the university sector. Well, yeah, I mean, it's quite surreal. You could study competition law at university and watch how universities abuse competition law with price discrimination. Mm. But just the sheer price that overseas students, particularly students from China, are paying to study here vis-a-vis what domestic students are paying. And by the way, domestic students in Scotland pay nothing because mm. it's, that's the £9,000 question. <clears throat> Why don't you have to pay for university in Scotland? But I just remember one of my... Biggest reflections of the year was going to the Bristol Festival of Ideas and sitting at this table with all these other speakers and hearing this very senior person at Bristol University talk to me about what was wrong with the world and the ethics and the principles of university education. And I said, who pays your wages? And she said, oh, it's obvious. The Chinese bourgeois pays for one third of the entire British university system. Mm. And it's just to remember how much of this brand value of this curriculum is being subsidized by overseas students and particularly that of China. And they could make a decision to study elsewhere tomorrow. We just have to keep that risk in mind. Yeah, and as our good friend Scott Galloway says, these universities are luxury brands that have enormous endowments. The endowments of the Harvards and Yales and Princetons and Columbias are enough so that they could allow every student to go there for free. But they don't because they like to pile up the cash. Let Let me move on to another topic that you spend a lot of time on in in your book. And indeed, we've spent a lot of time talking about in Bubble Trouble, which is this attention economy. And I have to say, I'm really sick of talking about the attention economy. I think we nailed the metaverse <laughs> as sure BS. Did. We nailed we, it first. We looked at a lot of other 
areas of the attention economy we felt were just overhyped. And I'd frankly rather talk about the distraction or the interruption economy because we have so many things trying to claim our attention, it doesn't seem like we can pay attention to anything anymore. And I want to concentrate a little bit more to avoid this interruption economy and ask, is this attention economy just a cruel joke? Is it just some excuse for the feebleness of a service that they have to grab you instead of allowing the qualities of the service to actually attract users? There's a lot in this one. And let's remind ourselves about an expression I used in the original book, Tarzan Economics, the tragedy mm. of the commons. Yes. So we think about fishermen. I would have an incentive to overfish the North Sea and maximize my profits. Richard Kramer would have an incentive to overfish the North Sea and maximize his products. It's a scarce good that's non-excludable. But if we both overfish the North Sea, there'll be no fish left. And I think that kind of summarizes what the interruption economy is doing to us. Mm. A wealth of information leads to a poverty of attention. And we have that tragedy in front of our faces. But what I explore in the afterword of the paperback edition of the book Pivot is really about whether that is what actually gets this metaverse off the starting blocks. It's a means to an end. Let's not talk about the future as the metaverse. Let's talk about the future as anything that can capture your undivided attention. Now, if the metaverse can deliver that purpose, maybe there's life in it yet. But I'm thinking one example I sometimes mull over is staff training. So most staff training exercises involve distractions, looking at your phone, staring out the window, chatting to your friends whilst the lecture or the whiteboard is going on. But if it's a metaverse-style staff training where you have to pay attention, then you will follow those instructions. I just think, step back from bashing the metaverse for a minute, we are in a distraction economy, an mm. interruption economy, and we need ways to capture your undivided attention. The metaverse might be one of them. Now, another section you touch on in the afterword is about all of what you call dubious crowd-drawing behavior. And I think NFTs was a great example of that. A lot of what's going on in this attention economy mm. is that kind of crowd-drawing behavior. Can you do something ever more outrageous to get people to look? Um, and I have to ask, are influencers sort of the new carnival barkers of our age? There's no regulation. There's been recent fines for many of them for pumping crypto schemes. We talk about wash trades. How are we going to regain our critical faculties when we have all of these people shouting for our attention and indeed they're being paid to shout for our attention? That's true. And I, first of all, I'd like to quote Sir Peter Battlejet, who said many years ago, about Facebook and fake news and influencer economy, he said, as a chairman of ITV, if anything like that happened in his commercial breaks, he would be up in front of the regulator by Monday morning. That's a regulated economy, but that's not where the crowds are. Viewership on linear TV, not that we actually measure it accurately, is definitely on the wane. The attention is going over to the TikToks, the Instagrams of this world, where the influencer economy thrives. And in the book, I talk about one of the most thriving professions in the influencer economy is, how do I phrase it? It's, a, it's like a surgeon, a sort of a, a part-time surgeon who can offer you BBLs. Now, do you know what BBL stands I for? do know what a BBL Spell is. Spell it out for me, sir. A Brazilian butt lift. <laughs> so when that type of service is thriving in the influencer economy, you do have to wonder, is there a case for regulation? So, yeah, it's just interesting to see regulation where the, is where the crowds are not, linear media world, broadcast radio, but regulation is not where the crowds are at. 
which is the, the world of social influencer marketing. And that, that imbalance, I think you can't ignore. And we, we, here in the UK, I mean, we have the online harms bill, which I call a Christmas tree bill, mm. where everybody's trying to stick a new item mm-hmm. on it as it goes through the parliament. But I think that's definitely high on their agenda, which is, does something need to come to pass here in terms of trying to regulate the wild west of the influencer economy so we don't have Brazilian butt lists as the most thriving profession going on on, the, on that particular marketplace? Mm. Now, I was a fan of the concept of Tarzan economics because I like the idea of Tarzan being a moral hero who'd swing down on the vines and rescue the damsel in distress in this case. It was 100 years ago, so let's not talk about the modern what the modern version might look like, whether Tarzan would be the female and the, it would be a dude in distress or whatever it would be these days. But, but here there is, this is something you point out in the afterword, there is no effective regulation. This attention economy has just exploded upon us like a a fragment bomb, fragmentation bomb, and no one seems to be able to put the genie back in the bottle. How do we recapture attention such that people can actually read a book? Do people read books anymore? Clearly, a million titles published. Independent bookshops are opening all over the place, record levels of independent bookshops in the UK. But how do you recapture that attention that has been so distracted? That requires some attention. Well, firstly, on your point, Books, let's remind ourselves of the favourite quote from the original manuscript, Tarzan Economics, which is 80% of books that are sold go unconsumed. That is, they sit Ah. on a shelf, they sit on a glass table, they might be a gift for someone else. But a very esteemed publisher said to me that he sets out his P&L every year knowing that 80% of everything that he produces and sells is actually not consumed by the consumer. Which is where he said, <laughs> that's where he said that a record, collection, a record collection defines who you are and the book collection defines who you really want to be. Mm. And I look at my own bookshelf, I would say that rule of thumb is broadly correct. But it's interesting. I mean, I don't know. I don't quite know how we're going to solve this. But one thing I would add to this mix of a conversation is when you learn that over half of the vinyl buyers in the UK don't have a record player, well, they're not paying attention to the record, but they are buying merchandise. So they are buying a body of work that lasts 50, 60 minutes. They're not listening to it, but they see that purchase as a form of merchandise. And there may be something in that we can tease out in terms of what does that mean for an attention economy, or as you rightly say, a distraction economy. But maybe that vinyl is a bit more of a rare commodity that they feel will have some resale value, whereas the books are ending up in your local charity shop. With that, I think we need to move to the break, and we're going to touch on some other points when I come back with our... Infamous author Will Page, author of both Tarzan Economics and Pivot, and he got a two-for-one special on most of the content. We'll be back in a moment. We're back with part two of Bubble Trouble, going over Will Page's afterword and further thoughts on his brilliant work, Tarzan Economics, now retitled Pivot. And I won't go through the long title because we've, we've been through all that, that mouthful already. So, Will, I want to come back and call out one of the areas you touch on in your afterword where you're debating the Ronald Coe's theory of the firm and the idea that these old-fashioned companies are dying because all of these new breed of firms don't have any of their internal transaction costs or overheads. And I guess 
Our point, and we've talked about this on previous Bubble Troubles that people can look back and listen to, is that a lot of those newfangled firms have just simply sneakily avoided the costs or the overheads of of those traditional firms. And we can name many, whether it's paying benefits or national insurance or tax or obeying the law and regulation. I mean, are these new companies just sidestepping the corporate social responsibility that we always thought companies should have? Or is this just the Milton Friedman taken to the extreme or a fantasy land, to quote Kurt Anderson, who we had on the podcast last year, that the only responsibility of firms is to make as much profit as they can, everything else be damned, and whoever else they steamroll in the process, it doesn't matter. So have we really given up on on Coase and the theory of the firm and the idea that companies can do the right thing? And is the world just now one where everybody's trying to disrupt everybody else and never mind the consequences? Well, first of all, I liked how you used the word sidestep, how you might sidestep your responsibilities as an employer. And if I use the term, it's a bit of a derogatory term, but the term champagne socialist, quite often you hear a person saying, oh, I employ a cleaner to clean my house because I can do something more productive with my time. That's how capitalism works. And I pay them the minimum wage. And then you say, but do you pay their health care and pension fund contributions as well? And the conversation goes dead. This an interesting way of just like, what is the labour market conditions for the gig economy? Just step back for a second and say, are they getting all the benefits that the firm would produce? But let me just come back on the Coase theorem. It is now almost, what, 100 years old, that mm, theorem, written yeah. before World War II. The 30s. So if you look at what he was saying and what he got the Nobel Prize for, he said, the time that a firm would spend, if you imagine an economy being a sea full of consultants, searching for the person who could make that car. I think Richard Kramer can make that car. Bargaining with Richard Kramer about what will it cost for Richard Kramer to make that car and enforcing the quality of the car that Richard Kramer makes. The search, the bargain, the enforcement costs make it pointless to have Richard outside the firm. It's better to bring him inside the firm and have this command and control structure called companies to make that car. It's a really clever abstraction of why do we have firms? Why aren't we just a sea full of consultants? Because the transaction costs make it unworkable. And what I'm arguing in the afterword of the book Pivot is that these transaction costs are coming down, making the option to go it alone that much easier. LinkedIn makes it harder, easier to find the person to do the job. Bargaining is much more price discovery about how much it could cost to do the job. And enforcement, if you think about the feedback effects of review sites, makes it easier to know that the job has been done well. In those very simple examples, I would argue that more people are revisiting that famous 1937 paper, The Theory of the Firm, and asking, well, do I need to work for a command control structure called a firm, or can I in fact go it alone? I'm not saying it's an extreme scenario, I'm just saying the pendulum is swinging back in the favour of doing it yourself, as opposed to going inside the company. But when I think of the gig economy or the creator economy, a lot of times I think of that as a very Darwinian you're on your own, mate, kind of struggle for a lot of the people that are supposed to be liberated in this economy. And if you scale that up, and this is something I want to touch on in Bubble Trouble in 2023, if you scale that theory up to the society level, how do you contribute to public goods? How do you pay for roads and hospitals and all those things if everybody is just taking their own and not contributing anything beyond that? And I think what you're talking about is well, the firm would like to divorce itself from the responsibility of looking after its workers, of paying the taxes and the overheads that go along with supporting those workers, and just let the worker come to them only when they need them. 
And scheduling that is certainly not an easy feat. And we're sitting here in the UK right now with a health service in crisis, partly because we haven't thought through how we're going to need to staff it and looking after the people that work in it. And indeed, we're paying well over the odds to these contracting firms that are bringing nurses in for three or four times what they would be paid directly working for the NHS. And that's a terrible social outcome. So I'm not sure we want to chuck out the firm just because transaction costs have gone down. We still want those firms and indeed employers generally to live up to their obligations, don't we? You're right, Richard, but I do think that you're slightly on the pessimistic edge of the spectrum here in terms of where this all ends up. If there was one tech company I'd love to see flourish in 2023, it'd be one that could solve the problem that I illustrated at the start of my answer. That is, a middle-class family employs a cleaner, they pay the cleaner the minimum wage, they think that's a social just thing to do, but they pay nothing for healthcare and nothing for pension and nothing for any other benefits on top. Now, let's imagine we're here at this amazing studio of Platoon, part of the Apple Empire here in North London, and we're with our producer, Lizzie. Let's imagine Lizzie is not one of the best producers on the land, but instead she's an actress and she's waiting some tables to make some disposable income. She's working in theatre and she's doing some daycare jobs just to make ends meet. So she's at the lower end of the income level and she's got three jobs. What if we could have an app which would allow those three employers to easily contribute to her pension and to her healthcare costs on a pro rata share of hours paid? Something like that could produce the solution which allows this gig economy, which is already thriving, what, four and a half million people in Britain are in the gig economy, maybe more, but could thrive even more. I just want you to think about can tech provide the solutions to get those transaction costs to fall even further than they're already falling? I mean, I think they could, but the problem is, and this is, again, something that we talked about at length with Cory Doctorow in the second podcast we did with him, was how labor has been atomized and disintermediated by big companies. And you do, you, in many of those big companies, they don't recognize unions. They don't recognize agglomerations of labor that would like to fight for some basic rights. And instead, they want an endless pool of labor with where they can get away with paying as little as possible. And I think that sort of paternalistic employer, it exists in some places, but it feels as if it's a lost art sacrifice to the god of efficiency and transaction costs. Corey made a wonderful point in that podcast. I really, of all the pods that we've done last year, I think Corey was the most lyrical guest that we've ever had, but he was talking about I challenged him to say, but, you know, Amazon's offering lower prices and that helps the consumer. But then he, do you remember he said that was words, but the consumer is also working for Amazon as well. Yeah. So it's, he brought it full circle. He was a guest that made you see the world differently. Indeed. And I think his point about monopsony is that the, they are monopolizing, large companies are monopolizing sellers. And we as employees or potential gig economy employees or contractors to those companies don't have much power over our labor relative to the companies that potentially could employ us. I don't say this is a solution to the problem you're highlighting, but I go back to my original thesis, the ability to leave that company and then to consult back into them where you name your own price and mm. your own terms 
potentially offers an alternative. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I'm saying it also adds to the growth of the gig economy if being in the firm becomes, relatively speaking, less desirable because of those conditions that you highlight. I mean, I will throw out as a theme that I would like to explore for the rest of 2023 what the long-term consequences of this gig economy are, because I think it has many damaging and deeply disturbing implications for where we go as a society. But let me touch on one more... Anyone who says, I'm going to go it alone, is not thinking, I'm going to go it alone forever. But you're right. Where does this go if we all go it alone? Right. We lose that social cohesion. I want to bring up one point you had on your last page of your afterword on the next disruptors. But I think you let it go way too easily. You talked about bankers and lawyers and accounting firms that got used to virtual online courtrooms. Remember the guy in Texas who was presenting in the court case and he had a cat avatar. In Britain, we had to tell judges how to use computers. That's an actual truth. It is indeed. Well, many of them are supposed to have the wisdom of ages. Or Zoom meetings, (laughs) instead of face-to-face pitches for bankers. But aren't all of these professions about to get smoked by artificial intelligence. And here we're not talking about people at the bottom end of the pay spectrum just looking to make a few extra bucks for a few extra hours of work, but some of the most highly paid professionals whose jobs are about to be replaced by computers. And in that sense, uh, you could have a lawyer that would spend 10 hours drafting your will or your uh, your mortgage agreement with your the person you're buying your house from, but now that's something that ChatGPT or an AI program can spin up for you in a second. Well, <laughs> timely as I spent this afternoon playing around with ChatGPT and my afterwards. It's all loaded up there and I was trying different variations. But if we go back to the first part of this podcast, Richard, we talked about getting drunk at university. Let me just say cheers to that because if I look at what ChatGPT is today... And if you asked it to write an essay about the Ottoman Empire today, for me, it resembles a student who spent too much time getting drunk at university, not enough time attending the lectures, and has scrambled to get through the exam to the best of their abilities. But that's not going to be like that forever. It's the rising tide of digitalization. As a digit gets bigger, so too does the tide. It's, this doesn't stop here. Now, if I turn to your world of the analyst economy... There's a famous remark from a large international bank, the chief operating officer. I was on stage with him. It was an Andrew Neal panel in Canary Wharf. And he said to me, my research budget at this bank is $110 million. Wow, that's a lot of money to spend on producing PDF reports. And then he said to me, 97% of them go unread. So I want to think about the banking community, your world here, and what could ChatGPT do to that? Firstly, it could write better headlines, so a bit more than 3% actually get read. That would be an interesting use case. Secondly, it could survey the chatter that's out there to find out of all the hype and hysteria, let's bucket into three major groups and address those three groups of themes coherently. That could be an interesting use of ChatGPT. But thirdly, If you loaded up all your research into ChatGPT, ran the program throughout it with the Codex algorithm, I think you could have proprietary information which produces the research for you. So what AI could be attacking in that respect is the analysts themselves. Well, I'll tell you where I would push back. And I'm going to tell a tale about one of my mentors, a professor in graduate school, who was an incredibly broad-minded guy. He was an anthropologist and an ethnographer. He was a professor in the Department of Landscape Architecture and Regional Planning. And he was also a consultant to State Farm Insurance, which is the largest insurance company in the world. It's a mutual. And trying to help the CEO and the board understand big picture issues, to understand 
Why is it that Japan doesn't grow? Well, they've engineered a deliberate no-growth economy because 80% of the arable land is forest and they have wow. limited energy resources. And if they were to grow 3%, they would wipe out the, what they have in terms of resources. So he said to me once, and I'm going to get to the key point on this, he said, everyone will tell you time and again through your education that you need to specialize. You need to get better and better at one thing. But when you're good at a lot of things, everybody will want you. If you're a professor of economics that also has something to say about sociology and history or culture, every university will fall all over themselves to get you. Right. But what's happened is we've had, in the academy, people get more and more specialized, hyper-specialized, so where in the Latin department, the professor of 15th century Latin can't talk to the professor of 16th century Latin because they don't quite speak the same language. And there's too much specialization, but for an analyst or for anyone who has to look at complex problems and solve them, the wider a net you can cast, the more endogenous inputs you can get, the more creative solutions you come up with, and the better quality work you have. So you could have an analyst, you could have 50 analysts, you could have 50,000 analysts, all experts in supply-side shocks to the economy, which is what we have just now, but none of them are experts in military conflict. And not one of them has got an, in, an interest in Russian history. It, precisely. And then... ChatGPT ain't got a hope in hell and at making then, sense of that can then. can someone then situate that in the context of, well, what have we as a society globally experienced... And it's very rare that we have experiences for society on a global level. Typically, they're at a country or regional level. Mm. We've all experienced this thing called the pandemic in the past two years. It's affected us in different ways. But in every country in the world, people all of a sudden became hyper aware of an environmental influence that hitherto they'd been ignorant of. So... How do you situate that in the context of people reassessing their lives, reassessing their thinking about resources and personal safety? There's a, and my point is, the wider net you can cast, the more broad-minded you can think, the more you'll be able to outwit the computer programs, which, let's face it, they're running algorithms which, as broad as the learning sets can be, they will come up with a fairly s s straightforward answer to problems. They're dealing with known knowns. Yes. There's two things just to wrap that one up there, which is, one, it goes back to our discussion about universities in part one, which is, I struggle to see the departments, the faculties in universities collaborating enough. In fact, sometimes Absolutely. they're driven to not collaborate. The business department doesn't want to speak to the music department. Well, there's this thing called the music business, and you can roll that across the entire curriculum. The psychology department isn't speaking to the economics department. Well, one feeds the other. And then the second thing is, one thing the pandemic irked me about, and I've had this bug in my basement for a long time, is how the BBCs and the CNNs of this world constantly roll out experts in unprecedented events. Mm -hmm. I'm an expert in global pandemics. Really? What's your track record like? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see the time series in that data. Well, let me give you one last point before we wrap up. And, you know, I read something today about how what a bust the creator economy has been, right? <laughs> and I re remember we were talking on a previous podcast that was a good about idea while it the lasted. $100 billion creator economy, and we were all going to be creators, and all you needed, all Lizzie, our producer sitting next to us, needed was to have 5,000 people paying her $10 a month, and she was golden. And if we could all just be individual creators, and it was a classic extrapolation of upper-middle-class behavior to the mass market.
and a classic inability to realize that, as we talked about in a previous podcast, we cannot be walking around tossing out fivers to every busker we walk by on the street or every piece of content we consume on the internet. And there's a limited number of times we can pay attention to someone sufficiently that we feel we're getting value to reward them as a creator. And to me, taking a, looking at a higher level of abstraction at that creator economy pitch, I think we were able to say a year ago, this is just not going to work that way. There's not going to be enough people that are willing to support these creators because this is something that is very much an upper middle class thing. And the same way as if you look at who supports the arts or who gives to universities, a very narrow segment of the population. You'd like it to be greater, but the economic pyramid doesn't support that. And when 40% of the people in the U.S. are living at or below the poverty line, you've got a lot of people that simply don't have the resources to be participants in the creator economy. I think going back to the strapline of this podcast, if there's a bubble at burst, we pricked it first. You certainly pricked the creator economy first. I think in 2021, actually, you called that one out as BS. But I think what's hurting the creator economy is spread and frequency. To your mm. first point, spread. Mm. The spread of that audience willing to chuck you five pound a month is a lot narrower than previously was envisaged. And then the frequency is, how often can you produce that content? Now, I speak of my own specialism of music, but we're having discussions now about whether the TikTok, TikTokification of the music industry is meaning people have to be always on. Okay, but what does that mean for their mental health? I just want to take that as a microcosm of a wider problem. If you want to make it work in the creator economy... The output that you have to produce to get those fibers to come in might exceed your mental and physical and health capacity. Yep. So I think that's just, and that takes me way out of my comfort zone talking about health issues like that. But we've got to be respectful of if you want to be a Substack writer and you want to get to 10,000 people chucking you 10 quid a month. You're on a treadmill. <laughs> you're, you're on a you know treadmill. You know what you are? You're Alice in Wonderland. You're on the Red Queen race where you yep. have to run as fast as you can in order to stand still. Yeah. And just to wrap up this wonderful episode talking about Will's book and our themes for 2023, we want to let our listeners know Will and I have never done Bubble Trouble for economic reasons. We don't make money from it at all. And we're doing this because we enjoy it. It's fascinating. And we're not eager to be on a treadmill of constantly churning out content for our livelihoods. There's just so many bubbles out there still to reflect upon. And we look forward in 2023 to digging into some of these issues and getting to an even higher level of abstraction about them. We'll be back next week with Will Page and myself, Richard Kramer. And this has been another Bubble Trouble. Thanks very much for listening. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Nozum, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. Special thanks this week to Oliver Blois and Elizabeth Arnold at Platoon 7 Studios in London for helping us record this episode. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, on behalf of my co-host Will Page, I'm Richard Kramer. Thank you.